This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome to the Knowledge at Wharton podcast series, From Backstreet to Wall Street, where entrepreneurs from around the world use innovative business models to solve some of the world's most pressing business problems. Leaders in the impact investing movement who are providing the capital to fuel the growth drive these conversations. Your hosts are Mukul Pandya, Executive Director and Editor-in-Chief of Knowledge at Wharton, and Doreen Shinaz, Founder and CEO of Impact Investment Exchange, one of the pioneers in promoting impact investing in Asia. Over 3.5 million people die prematurely from indoor air pollution caused by using solid fuels such as wood and animal dung for cooking and heating. Now, 60% of those who die are women and girls, and it's no surprise because they're the ones who are usually doing most of the tasks related to it. In um, households that cook with solid fuel, uh, girls spend up to 18 hours a week on average gathering fuel and, of course, inhaling the smoke you know, from that fuel. In this episode, we have with us Ben Jeffries, CEO of ATEC Biodigesters, based in Cambodia. ATEC provides the world's first commercially scalable, low-cost biodigester that converts manure and bio-waste into clean biogas for cooking and organic fertilizer for farming. Their work is improving crop yield and creating a smoke-free cooking environment for women and children in Cambodia. Ben, welcome to the show, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Doreen. It's a pleasure to be here. Good, good. So let's just get started. Um, you know, what what started you on this journey to connect um, Backstreet to Wall Street? Yeah, so, so for us, it was um, really looking at... Uh, the, the variety of issues that Cambodians experience um, in rural households on a day-to-day basis. So you, you've got households that are traditionally farming households um, that are, are fairly um, sort of cash-strapped um, and are living in a way that provides quite a few challenges both to their personal health, uh, to their household income, to their farming and, and to their time. So we took a a sort of good look at that and looked at what technologies could best sort of uh, support and help those people um, through that process as well. And, uh, yeah, that sort of was where we started. So, Ben, you are, of course, you know, you're not from Cambodia. You're from Australia. So what made you Mm -hmm. leave, you know, your home, the nice beaches of Australia and go to this, you know, remote country and, pick biodigesters for, you know, among anything else? I mean, what was that journey? Yeah, the the beaches were the hard part to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- thankfully, uh, Cambodia also has some very nice beaches, so I've uh, been able to compensate there. Oh, that's there. good. <laughs> that helps. Okay. <laughs> um, but, yeah, for, for me personally, it was um, – very much uh, an opportunity to really take my skills. Um, I mean, my background's more in the business sector, uh, in business development. Um, so, and I had a went from working in in the corporate sector to then working uh, for Oxfam for a period of time, 
Um, and then through through those two experiences, got to understand a bit more about social enterprise and the role social enterprise could pay, play. Um, so that was a, a real interest for me. I started working for a uh, social enterprise incubator in Australia, um, but really wanted to, um, as you say, get, get my hands a bit more dirty. So um, I had an opportunity to uh, sort of look at taking what had been some earlier stage prototypes um, that managed uh, at the time it was Engineers Without Borders and Live and Learn to Australian NGOs, uh, had managed to win uh, the Google Impact Challenge um, to basically commercialise a, a prototype they'd done for biodigesters. Um, so, so that did was you, the point in so which I ben, came... Just to, ben, just, to, just for our listeners to um, understand, so you're in Australia, you obviously, you know, we're very interested in, in doing something good for the world, so spend time with Oxfam and related organizations, but you also spend time in the corporate side. But it sounds like you worked or at least were closely associated with um, Engineers Without Borders, and they came up with this prototype that um, that you have today. I mean, was this something that you worked with them, or is this something that you went to them and said, hey, Guys, I spent time in Cambodia, and the trees are all being cut off. And you know, this is—they need something. Can you can you help? Well, how how did that process start? Yeah, so for, for me, it was um, I was working in Australia at the time, and um, I I had gotten to know over a few years Engineers Without Borders and and some of the team there, um, and Engineers Without Borders. Um, uh, had, had quite rightly identified that they're very good at the technical side of things as engineers, mm-hmm. um, but mm-hmm. they were really lacking the the skill set around uh, taking that sort of early stage prototype and commercialising it. So, so that's sort of the motivation, both for me personally and also for engineers without borders and live and learn to come on board. Um, and that was quite a process, um, as I'm sure anyone who's who's been through it could relate to, because. What works effectively for you at that prototype phase, as far as how you construct it, how how you build it, how you test it, etc., um, a lot of that gets thrown out the window as you get to the the commercialization phase, where you're trying to produce a large number of these units to a consistent quality. Right, and how? What is? I mean, again, uh, just to give um, our listeners a feel for it. I mean. Can you describe what a Cambodian village looks like and then what your biodigester looks like, I mean, and how it fits in? Yeah, so if you look at Cambodia, I mean, a typical rural household, um, there'll be sort of five to seven family members in the household. Uh, They traditionally have a couple of hectares of rice. Maybe they also grow a few vegetables and, and fruit as well. Um, and they predominantly use wood for cooking, or depending on the area, they might have started using uh, the small butane gas cylinders for cooking. Um, now, that, that all, that's the traditional way to go, but that presents some significant problems for them. Um, one of those problems is, um, as you mentioned at the start, Doreen, is that cooking with wood uh, kills a lot of people around the world every year through smoke inhalation. Um, it's also linked to uh, child malnutrition as well. Um, So in Cambodia, they estimate around 14,000 people per year die due to smoke-related illnesses, and a majority of them are women. Um, Now, for a typical rural household, the the question is, well, what else can we use? And so what some people are going towards is uh, using bottled gas, uh, those small butane gas cylinders. Um, Unfortunately, though, in Cambodia, they're both expensive 
costing around $260 a year to use for cooking. Um, and they're also quite dangerous because they're very low, qu- low quality and reused. So everyone in Cambodia knows someone um, who's had some, one explode on them um, at some time. So th- there's really a, a lack of good choices for cooking um, for Cambodians. And, and it's quite time intensive too. The World Bank just released a point saying it, to cook with wood takes about an additional 20 hours per week uh, to collect and prepare the wood compared to uh, cooking with gas or other options. Um, so it's it's really a, a challenge for people, and that's where we see biogas, I mean, using that animal manure uh, and green waste available already at the household to convert that into the free renewable biogas um, that they can use every day. Plus, they get 20 tonnes of uh, organic fertiliser out of it as well. Right. So was this a, was this a big um, jump? I mean, you know, you, you know, you're Australian originally, obviously, you know, an entrepreneur coming into Cambodia, coming in not only with a new product, but also a new way of cooking, right, and, and using fertilizer. I mean, this is a huge leap and sell. I mean, how did you do it? Yeah, I think... Um I mean, a couple of things there. Probably number one is just really going and, and talking to people and, and drawing on that existing knowledge. So both local people as well as um, speaking to people who have been working in, in with the communities for quite a while. Um, so I did quite a bit of that when I, I first got to Cambodia. Um, the The second thing that I think was really important, I think, for anyone looking at um, sort of market development, uh, in any country is is looking at what is important to you may not actually be important to the household and something else that may mm. be very important to the household may not be very important to you. Um, so what I mean by that is, is, for example, we're obviously wanting to do this for the great social and environmental benefits that come from it. Um, but right. what is really the tipping point in going from people thinking it's a good idea to actually purchasing a system was really the the aspiration of modernising their house. Um, so moving away from wood, which uh, is has a lot of issues around smoke, um, it also makes your kitchen very black and make everything look dirty, to having a modern, clean kitchen. So when we originally started, we just had a stove that we were doing it with, and then we upgraded to a better-looking stove that looked just like an LPG stove, um, and yeah. people were much more interested. Then we introduced a biogas rice cooker, um, and people were even more interested. That was like the, the holy grail of uh, kitchen accessories for a Cambodian household. Um, so okay. as we went through that, our price actually increased, um, but the desirability of the product increased as well. Um, so, so we really pushed that modern kitchen as part of the uh, selling process now. Right, that's interesting. So you really sort of pushed the whole look as well and sort of how, how it will be represented. So that, that is very interesting. So now, again, with something like this, obviously pricing is a big component as well. And uh, Cambodia is a country uh, which, you know, it, it, is, it is a poor country. Per capita is, what, about $620 a year. And your units are about 160 or so, right, dollars a year. So uh, how, is there a certain sort of pricing mechanism that you have or financing? I mean, how do you convince people to um, come up with this money or do you help with, you know, with that? Uh, how does it work? 
Yeah, it's um, so our systems, depending on what you get, range from $500 to $650 US a system. So that's a, a significant um, Oh, it's actually much uh, more than what I thought. I apologize. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Yeah. Um, so it's a significant purchase for Cambodian households. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so really what, what the biggest thing for us is, is also not just looking at the cost of the purchase, but the payback of the purchase too. Um, mm. So if you break that, that dollar figure down with, with financing, which is the majority of our customers do uh, microfinancing, it works out about $30 a month for two years to buy a system. Now, the great thing about having a buyer digester is effectively once you count all those savings together, um, you're, the household is saving around about $30 per month as, at the same time as well. So for that two mm -hmm. years that they're paying off the system, uh, they're effectively not really spending any additional money. Um, it's pretty much sort of uh, expenses out and, and that additional uh, savings in. Um, then the, the added benefit is then the system, our systems last for uh, around 25 years. So over the lifetime of the product, you're talking sort of five to $6,000 worth of savings for the household. So it, it's pretty significant. And a, a two-year payback period is is very good. I mean, if you look at the West, at solar, I mean, you're talking six to ten years typically with a solar system in the West. Um, so two years is quite good. The, the challenge right. and the, the trick for us is actually taking people through that process and understanding that process um, so that they're willing to make that investment. Um, but we've done right. over 600 and how is that process? in Cambodia now. I think our, our listeners would be curious about that. I mean, how, how is that process? Because obviously... You know, it is. I can imagine this is this is quite a um, selling process, right? So, uh, walk us through it. I mean, I mean, how challenging, or yeah. it must be. You know, it must be quite something. Yeah. Uh, the the biggest the biggest challenge in sales is I think people think of sales as as going and selling to people. Um, and mm. if you look at more modern sales techniques or, or sales training. Um, it's kind of the opposite. It's actually about being good listeners and being strategic in asking questions and, and so forth. So what I mean by that is that, um, for example, when we do our sales pitch, so we'll have one of our sales staff go into a village and, and talk to the villagers um, about it. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the pitch takes around sort of 20-odd 20, 20 minutes um, for them to go through okay. it. We'll spend about 15 of those minutes um, actually just talking about the existing problems uh, that people have. Mm. So they'll talk about what it's like to cook with wood, how much is it costing them, or are they using bottled gas, how much is it costing them, are they using chemical fertilisers, how is that affecting your soil, what is that costing you, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll really step that out through the process. So you identify the problem, um, then you identify mm -hmm. the cost of the problem, then you move to the solution, which is the biodigester, then you talk about the value of the system, how much it will save them in the long term. So you take them through that four-step process of problem, cost, solution, value. Now, your problem and cost section, um, and we've had Wittenroy Partnerships, who are an American sales consultants, really help us with this. Mm. Um, that will take a majority of your time uh, if you're doing it well. And then by the time you get to the solution, i.e. the product, which is traditionally where salespeople start, um, the product's already sold itself. Um, people are already exactly. convinced that they exactly. need it before they even know what it is. For our listeners, um, you're listening to From Backstreet to Wall Street, a series that explores how impact investing is linking the remotest part of the world to the global financial markets. 
Today's episode is Clean Energy and Women, and we have our guest, Ben Jeffries from ATEC Biodigesters, and I'm doing Shanaz from Impact Investment Exchange. So, Ben, you really, you, I mean, this is, this is very interesting because I think, again, uh, what you're really telling us is it's really no different. Customer is a customer, right, sitting in Australia or the U.S. or Cambodia. So, um, you know, it's the same process. It's the same, you know, way to get a customer, So, which is, which is very interesting. Now, in terms mm-hmm. of sort of the cultural nuances, when I mean, is there someone like a village elder you need to convince first to get something like this, or is it the women? Because once again, um, this, something like this impacts the family, absolutely, but it impacts the women most positively because they're the ones who are inhaling the smoke and the girls, right? So we're, we're doing the mm. cooking and also collecting the woods. I mean, how do you sort of deal with the cultural nuance? Yeah, it's a um, it's an interesting one. I think. I mean, one of the strongest parts is really getting good people in your team who who have similar values and can and see the situation. I mean, particularly as a non-Cambodian living in the in Cambodia, um, you have to be very mindful straight away that uh, you're a foreigner and you can never truly understand all the cultural nuances um, of the country. Um, so really getting good people around you who can help help to flesh that out and, and understand it is, is really key. Um, the advantage of that is you can see things from a different perspective. Um, so I think it brings its advantages, but definitely there's more challenges there than advantages. Um, I mean, for us, when it comes to the actual household, it's um, it's really understanding that that sort of decision-making dynamic um, there as well, because I mean it depends a bit on the cost of the product too. So if you're selling a cheaper product, um, so for example, there's someone who does water filters, which are around I think twenty five thirty dollars a unit in Cambodia. Um, a single family member um, could make a purchase decision on that, be it the husband or the wife of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're talking a biodigester, which is a significant purchase, um, <clears throat> around sort of ten twenty times that cost. Um, it is very mm-hmm. much a joint decision between the two um, sort of heads of the household, typically. Um, really? So that's now, interesting. So the women, they do have a voice in Cambodia. Oh, yeah, most definitely. I'd, I'd say the women have definitely a stronger voice than the men overall. Now, mm-hmm. the, men, the men are under, as men quite often are, uh, are under the delusion that they're making the decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I can attest to as well. Um, but uh, definitely it's it's a joint decision-making process, and it's quite often uh, the woman who's um, really kind of becomes a bit more of the product champion because she experiences those problems much more uh, deeply um, than does the man of the household. But what we we did was really look at... Because a biodigester is a bit of a complicated product because you have this cooking side, but then you have this farming fertiliser side. So right. the advantage of that, though, is you can change your conversation based on who you're talking to as well. So obviously for the um, the woman who's typically responsible for a lot of the cooking, um, th- talking to them about the cooking benefits resonates very strongly. Um, then talking to the, the man of the household about the fertiliser and, and farming outcomes resonates quite strongly. And then the, it's bringing those two together um, is, is really the key from there. Right, right. This is this is 
amazingly fascinating. Um, now, Ben, it seems like, you know, you're doing very well. I mean, this is just so impressive. You have really gone through so many hurdles in figuring out the right product, you know, the right, the the pricing, the 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 business strategy, et cetera. And I guess from what I understand, you're almost uh, producing 330 units, I mean, you know, and, and selling them every month. Now, how did the financing of this work? Because um, I know at the IAX, um, at Impact Investment Exchange, we worked with you on your closing your Series A round. Um, how, you know, did the investor like this? I mean, I, I remember when we looked at it, I mean, I just loved your business. Um, but what is the investor reaction? What was your experience sort of going through this in the capital raise? Do you want to share that with our listeners? Yeah, yeah. So um, we we closed uh, our Series A investment round um, in August last year. Um, mm-hmm. So to give people a bit of an idea, I mean, we we went out and started pitching to investors probably two and a half years ago. Um, oh my goodness! Okay. That was initial conversations. Then we really got to the serious end of finalising with investors, and that took around uh, probably nine months to to actually get the cash through the door. So it was a lengthy right. process. So right. anyone coming from uh, the venture capital world, where I believe it happens much, much faster, um, in the right. impact investment world, I think there's a, a lot more stakeholders and other things going on. So you just, you do have to get in, start early. Because uh, it does, it does take time. Um, right, right. So yeah, but and but, I mean, what? I mean, process, it's interesting, isn't it? Sorry, Andrew. Sorry, Ben. To, just one thing, just again, um, to give some perspective, because there is so much of now conversation about impact investing and all that. But the reality is, still, I mean, every investment is seen, I would say, even more cautiously than regular investments are, and from many different angles. I mean, that's also one of the reasons, right? Where it takes. A long time. Yeah, yeah. I, I think definitely. I think um, there's still. I mean, because of that newness. Uh, sorry, terrible word, newness. But the um, the the impact investment space it still has quite a bit of caution in there because a lot of people mm-hmm. are still figuring out, and and there's there's still not that level of risk appetite um, that mm. you'd see in other markets um, as well. Right. So I, I think that will change change in the future. Um, but right. at the moment, it, it is it, it's they're still expecting a fairly high level of success. Right. Now it, it's slowly changing. And how uh, what role does the whole impact measurement and sort of looking at the impact that you're creating? Um, how do you see that fitting in? I mean, did the investors actually um, put weight on that, or did they say, "Oh, okay, kind of nice," or was it something like, "Yes, this is the." The main reason why I'm doing this. I'm not. What kind of reaction did you get? Yeah, I think that that became kind of our main qualifying question because what you'd find is you'll find a whole range of impact investors, just like you find a whole range of social enterprises. Um, so you have mm-hmm. some impact investors where the impact side of things is very much a tick box, um, and mm-hmm. then right at the other end, you've got people who are more traditionally philanthropists. Um, and mm-hmm. the financial return is, is, is not a significant thing to them. It's more about the impact. And then you've got everyone in the middle from there. Um, so right. quite often, I mean, in, in our circumstance, and it depends on what you're doing, but in our circumstance, one of the things we realised early is that we're, we're selling to rural Cambodians. And 
if we were to generate commercial returns off those sales, pretty much the only way we we're going to do it is, is charging quite a high price um, to rural mm-hmm. Cambodians. And that, that's not really the interest of, of what we wanted to do. What we wanted to do was look at a balance between uh, being a, a profitable social enterprise, providing a, a, a good return to investors, but not at commercial rates, but really right. then considering in the social and environmental outcomes that come from that because a biodigester does really tick a lot of boxes on the impact side. Mm -hmm. So when we went into a conversation with an impact investor, one of the first questions I'd always ask would be, are you expecting commercial return? Or are you looking Mm -hmm. at the size of the impact being being achieved and as part of that in your calculations of return there? Now, if people sort of said, I want commercial returns plus the impact, then, I mean, that's a pretty hard thing to deliver on. Um, in a lot of circumstances mm-hmm. where you're dealing with last mile customers. So they were kind of the ones that we didn't go towards. Um, if people, if investors were like, well, yeah, we're interested in the size of the impact and what you're doing and how you're doing it, and yes, we want a commercial return, but we're willing to consider these other things, and they're the ones that we um, gravitated towards. Right, right. No, I think it makes sense, and it's obviously a process, a lot of conversation. Um, back and forth. So uh, what's now sort of the long-term vision for uh, your growth? Because obviously you're doing, you know, you're growing nicely now after going through all these hurdles, but you are growing. Um, so what, what is sort of the long-term vision? Where, where do you see yourself in the next few years? Yeah, so at the moment, I mean, we, we very much designed the, the product. Um, we've actually, we've got a patent pending on the product as well. Um, for it to be something that could go well beyond Cambodia. Um, I mean, Cambodia mm-hmm. is a is a significant market in that it's there's around 1.3 million households in Cambodia um, that could have the product. But when you compare that to markets such as Myanmar, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Vietnam, uh, India, etc., I mean these these markets are ten times uh, that size, or up to ten times that size. So. What we wanted to look at doing was designing a product that could be commercially scalable um, and really mm-hmm. work in a lot of the challenging conditions many of these countries have. I mean, many of these countries have high groundwater, flooding, potentially earthquakes where traditional biodigester systems won't work well uh, or have a high right. failure rate. So our product has been designed to, to work in those more challenging environments. So at the moment, um, I mean, we've got the production, distribution and financing up and running in Cambodia. Uh, we've got a team of 30 staff there, which are doing a fantastic job. Um, and mm-hmm. I've just been in Myanmar for a week. Uh, so we're currently looking at Myanmar. And effectively, we want to get out to um, well at least 50,000 units by uh, 2030. Um, okay. And that would be across multiple countries. So uh, for us, uh, Myanmar, Indonesia, Bangladesh... Uh, are probably the top of that that list, but we're also looking at other other opportunities in other countries too. Right, right, um, and I think you know you're definitely on the right path. So this is this is very this is very encouraging to hear it. Um, now, as a final question, I mean, I mean, what gives you hope that we can sort of connect, you know, what we like to say the back street to Wall Street and achieve, you know, this Sustainable Development Goal Seven, which is this affordable and clean energy. I mean. Is that really possible? Do you think, uh, I mean, at least do you see uh, ATEC playing a big role in it? I mean, what, what's your thought by 2030 where we will be with uh, affordable and clean energy? Yeah, I, I think it's, 
I mean, if we're talking the, the back street to Wall Street, as, as you say, um, I think probably the biggest opportunity there is around, well, probably two parts, is number one, opening up uh, capital, so investment and, mm-hmm. and other forms that traditionally have not really looked at the impact of what they're doing. Um, I think the the social enterprise sector, and I mean, there's impact investment and a fair bit coming in from sort of what was traditionally philanthropy or, or government funding or other components, which is really good, um, but relatively that's a small part of the overall global capital markets. Right. Um, and we don't we, we don't want impact investment to totally or, or substitute uh, don't, uh, sort of grant-based work as well because there are, I mean, impact investment only works when there's a product or service to sell and only works in particular circumstances. So we don't want to, there's always going to be fantastic work that needs donor funds. So I think we need to be cautious that we don't think it's the, the, the total the solution to every exactly. problem as such. Right. Right, and we do need larger and larger um, amounts of capital from the market. Yep. Correct. Yeah. So I think really the opportunity is these these large capital markets of starting them to. I mean, it doesn't even have to be impact investment per se, but it could just be the consideration of the social and environmental outcomes, which which is kind of impact investment, but we don't have to label it as such. But really, that consideration around There's nothing the wrong with the label. Looking, trust me. Okay. Well, you can call it impact investment if you want. Um, But even that consideration, now you may not be investing for those things, but at least the consideration of those things could create monumental change um, in the way investment is is done into the future. Right. And Um, I think that's that's actually a a good way to sort of uh, wrap this up because you're absolutely right. Um, I think we need to really think about scale. And for that scale to happen, we really need to have capital markets as a part of it and have sort of innovative products, you know, financial products that incorporate, um, you know, sort of uh, entities like yours and your growth model. So this is this is very encouraging to hear. Um, ben, I mean, I won't keep you anymore because this has been really, really, really fantastic. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you. Mm, thank you, Doreen. And, and thanks to everyone for organizing this. Well, we just heard from Ben Jeffries of ATEC Bio. Um, very, very interesting insights in the work that uh, he is doing with ATEC in Cambodia and now in other countries. And now we'll get another perspective from Dimpna van der Lans, CEO of Global Alliance for Clean Cook Stoves. The Alliance is a network of global partners hosted by the UN Foundation to create a thriving global market for clean and efficient household cooking solutions. Its work addresses the market barriers that hinders the production, deployment, and the use of clean and efficient cookstoves that fuels in the developing countries. Dimfana, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, and I'm delighted to be here. Great. So, as we ask all our guests, we want to start this with a little story from you, and we would love to hear what got you started on this journey in connecting the back street to Wall Street investing in clean energy and women? Sure. Um, My journey started about 25 years ago when I decided to um, study Chinese and get my master's in Chinese economics and law. For my research on my thesis, I um, spent quite a lot of time in Beijing 
And once um, in Beijing, I just realized that I could not get away from what was clearly visible, which is just a really difficult situation around air pollution in China. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. once I, I realized that that was just such an important issue and that so much of it was related to how we generate and use electricity and all the services that come with it, I moved into the energy sector and have never never looked away from it. It's an incredibly important issue to me to really think carefully about how we're addressing climate change and how we're using energy and energy services is an important part of that. And so through my career, I've always really looked at um, the sustainable uses of, of energy and energy services. And it's um, it's a topic I'm incredibly passionate about right. and continue to be passionate well, about. Well, it, it looks like it. I mean, you have spent so many years on this. And now, where does women come in? I mean, I shared some statistics, but again, mm-hmm. for our readers, can you can you give them a, an idea, a picture of, of what this all is? I mean, why are women and girls affected so much by this? Yeah, I think as soon as you start thinking about issues around access to energy, with still currently 1.1 billion people in the world without access to energy, to clean, sustainable, and affordable energy, 3 billion people in the world have no access to clean cooking solutions. And as we all know, most of the cooking still and continues to be done by women. And so if you think Mm -hmm. about the impact of women cooking for their families over open fires, literally they're they're cooking and, and making sure that their families... Um, have food on the table, but at the same time they're they're doing it in really horrible circumstances with indoor air pollution just incredibly impacting their their, their own health and their family's right. health. So they play a really really important role in sustaining their families, and I think it's just unacceptable that in doing that they're exposed to so much indoor air pollution. Right, and also I guess some of the even um, you know related issues in terms of the firewood that they have to collect, um, and of course, you know, forget the, the trees that are being burned, but just the firewood that, the, and most of the time it's the women and the girls who are collecting it, and the safety issue around all of that and the time it takes, right? I mean, that's a big issue as well. It is a really big issue, and if you think about just sort of the, the actual preparation of the food doesn't take that much time, but the actual getting ready to make the, to prepare the meals does take a lot of time, and as you indeed were mentioning, it, it has a big impact on how women and children are spending their time on a daily basis um, because very, very often they do have to walk for very long distances to collect the wood to bale the fires, just as they have to walk long distances very often to um, get to clean um, drinking and, and, and water that they can use for their families, um, different uses as well. So there are, these issues are really closely linked, and I think it's incredibly important to realize that we're not just talking about clean cooking, we're also talking about creating sustainable livelihoods for the families that include many different parts of their lives that really need to be um, addressed much more holistically. Right. And it is really amazing because um, I think the thought that we take, you know, sort of in the developed world, we take this mm-hmm. so much for granted. And yeah. uh, and this is so all-consuming, right? So how did this come about? I mean, how did the alliance come about? You know, how did this all get started? I mean, it almost seems like this was something so important and was ignored for so long. I mean, how did it mm-hmm. come about? Yeah, so the Global Alliance was started in, 20, or in 2010 um, by a whole mm-hmm. um, group of founding partners, and it really is founded on a really simple belief, which is cooking shouldn't kill. And so if mm. you just take that simple belief that, that, that women shouldn't die from preparing food for their families, 
then making sure that that issue reaches a global audience. So the, the importance of the alliance is really making sure that we continue to increase global awareness around these issues, which in the case of clean cooking, as you mentioned, has been really difficult and honestly continues to be quite challenging. Um, it is very, very often overlooked and not right. always um, put at the same sort of level and same sense of urgency that some of the other development um, goals do get. And so our job and my job is really making sure that this doesn't get forgotten and actually gets increased focus and increased awareness for global audiences, but also at the country level. So for the individual countries where, where there's still 70% of the population who doesn't have access to clean cooking solutions, our job as the alliance is to make sure that that awareness at the local level also increases. And we help those governments to create sort of the right policy environments so that these issues can be addressed. So, Dimfana, just a quick question about, uh, since you referred to it as a global issue, uh, in which countries do you find the problem is most acute and, and, and mm-hmm. are situations getting, uh, is the situation getting better or is it getting worse? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of countries in which is, this is still a, a huge issue. Um, many of the countries in Africa, many of the countries in Asia, um, also large countries like um, China and India, all of those populations and in all of those countries, still a large amount of the population relies on wood to prepare their food and, and cook their meals. And so it truly really is a, a global issue. Um, we see a lot of progress. There has been a lot of um, good momentum and a lot of progress has been made over the last 10 years. Um, but clearly not enough, and it's something that we, we, we as a global sort of world must really continue to put our, to our, our efforts to. We see clearly that um, progress is, is um, much quicker when countries do create sort of a right policy environment around it, because if that exists, then what we see is that more and more um, companies and enterprises are actually looking into these markets because they can see sort of a favorable policy environment which, as you know, is incredibly important. If you're a startup and an entrepreneur, you need to be working in a sort of a predictable policy environment. And we see that those countries that are really focusing on creating that environment, we see um, definitely sort of an increased uptake of clean cooking solutions. For, for the sake of our listeners, uh, could, could you explain a little bit more about what you mean by a positive policy environment? Mm-hmm. Sure. So one of the... the um, uh, the other sort of elements that, that I think is important to mention for the Global Alliance is that we are firm believer that this particular development issue needs to be addressed in a very, very sustainable ma- way. And with that, we mean that the scale of this issue is so large, we really believe that it can only be addressed using a market-based approach. And what we mean with that is to really make sure that we um, create an environment in which companies are actually able to sell <coughs> products into the market that give um, the customers, our customers, access to clean cooking solutions. Um, and within that context, um, if a, a company is starting up in a certain country, very often when they're beginning, they may be importing their product from somewhere else because they're still testing the market or they want to make sure that it actually is a market in which their products are going to be um, used and, and find sort of a, a demand that's big enough to for them to ultimately do in-country manufacturing. So some of the governments and some of the policies that we seek to um, uh, support are really sort of around import duties, um, tax relief, anything that has to do with sort of access to financing that could be um, more supportive for, for entrepreneurs who I think it's also important to realize work on really, really thin margins. And so 
I think as you and the listeners know, margins really matter. And they matter really very, very much in the world that is um, providing access to clean cooking solutions. So anything that, that can be done to make sure that companies can sort of increasingly focus on improving their margins is very, very much needed. So, Dintana, um, I, you know, it's interesting because when I remember when it all started and, you know, now about eight years ago, mm-hmm. while this seems like the most kind of no-brainer, right? I mean, yeah. clean cook stoves, yeah. my God. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone, every woman should have it, you know, in, ev- mm-hmm. in every country. But mm-hmm. there were challenges, right, in terms of, obviously, as you mentioned, the supply chain. I mean, how do they mm-hmm. get the products? Uh, and there was also, interestingly, two other challenges, which I remember reading mm-hmm. a lot about. One was the designs, and the mm-hmm. second was the, just the behavioral change. So mm-hmm. how did the alliance sort of get over those hurdles? Um, you know, I, I hear about the policy changes, but of course policy takes a long mm-hmm. time because you did actually, I mean, you have now distributed, you know, um, what, 100 million stoves or, or north of that. So how did you go about sort of, of dealing with this? Yeah, and, and I should probably say that uh, as much as I would like to think we're over that hurdle, we really aren't. We're still trying to get over many of these hurdles and many of the challenges that we face within this sector are, are really difficult to, to address and, and really need a sort of a whole systems approach and really bring in a lot of partners to make sure collectively we address these hurdles. I'll say um, specifically on some of the ones that you mentioned, for example, sort of the behavior change aspects of it and, and really increasing awareness um, around mm-hmm. um, access to clean cooking solutions for the consumer is one of the things that the Alliance has spent a lot of um, time on over the last couple of years. We've had campaigns that have been really successful. Um, We did some campaigns in Kenya based on a reality show that focused on clean cooking. Um, We did campaigns in other countries that really use sort of mobile outreach to the customers that our companies are trying to serve to make sure that there's increased awareness of the availability of some of these products. So we've done a lot of these um, awareness raising campaigns that that have been successful and learned from the ones that weren't successful. I think it's also important Mm -hmm. to acknowledge that in a space like this, it's sometimes equally important to learn from the things that haven't worked so that you continuously adapt as you move forward and, and, and try to get over those hurdles. Mm-hmm. And I think on the sort of the, the awareness raising, we're definitely moving in the right direction and learning a lot from what we've done and continue to do a lot of that. And the importance of reaching a, a wide audience is incredibly important because very often you you see a product somewhere else or you hear about a product somewhere else and that sort of is the incentive for others other women to then go that is a really good product and i would like to use that so the the more people we can reach the better it is um the other thing that i would sort of oh go ahead no no, no, i was just going to say as as you're talking about it it'll be also interesting um for our listeners to uh just get an idea of i mean what's the price of these cook stoves how much um, do people pay? I mean, do, do those sort of also bake into the decision whether they switch to these cook stoves or not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's important to notice to note that that um, it isn't just about the stoves. This conversation mm-hmm. and the, the sector that we're in isn't just about the stoves. And, and in a way, our name is sort of unfortunate and a little bit misleading because it really is about cooking solutions and those include um, fuels and appliances and other issues as well so it's not um, just thinking about this issue thinking about giving women access to a stove isn't going to solve solve the whole issue obviously and so um, 
it's really important to to create products that consumers want to use. I think historically, sometimes products, uh, stoves would be put in the market that weren't necessarily designed for sort of the appropriateness of that that um, that region or um, the, the sort of the part of the country that they were. Um, trying to sell them in, and so it's it's they need to be appropriate. They need to be designed with the consumer in mind, just like anywhere else. And for any other consumer product, that's the same for the the consumers that we're trying to reach here. So it's not it's not unique when I say it, but it's interesting that that's like it's taken the the sector a while to sort of really sort of shift around and think what do we sign? How do we design a product that the consumer wants to use? And so your question about sort of affordability is equally important because we can design a product that they would want to use, but if it's then not affordable, then that still doesn't give them access to um, clean cooking solutions. And so the affordability is really dependent on um, sort of the the technology that is being used for the different stoves and the associated um, fuels that are being used for the stove. So when you sort of think about biomass stoves and when you move up towards more LPG-based um, cooking solutions, then the, the, the biomass stoves are sort of on a price range that are probably a little bit more affordable for um, people who are sort of in the rural areas, for example. And if you think about LPG, a lot of those solutions are more affordable for sort of the peri-urban um, areas in the countries where our um, stakeholders or our, our um, partners work in. And so it really depends on the the stove. It really depends on the fuel. What's interesting here is thinking about consumer finance. And so there's Mm. a lot of innovation that's happening right now that I find really, really fascinating and just really wonderful to see, which is around sort of a pay-as-you-cook model, if you will. Mm -hmm. So there's companies now emerging in in Africa and other parts of the world that are testing out models that aren't necessarily focused on sort of the technology innovation. They're really focused on business model innovation. In other words, how can we create a business model that that, that actually allows for the consumers to um, pay for the stove either through a down payment and then, then paying small increments for the fuel use or um, just using sort of a, almost like an ATM kind of machine where they can go and, and pay a certain amount of money to... Um, by the appropriate amount of fuel that they can afford at that particular moment. So there's different, a lot of different models emerging, um, specifically around sort of the affordability, which is is critically important. And I think what we're also seeing, um, you're absolutely right. So in the, mm-hmm. you know, obviously the countries that IX works in, and I believe we're doing some work with you uh, under mm-hmm. the Sparks Plus program um, mm-hmm. in um, in Cambodia. And what we're seeing is now. You're absolutely right. It's just not the financing part, but also it's how it's being bundled um, with, you know, other services as well. So it's not only yeah. just the, the cook stove, but just as you said, it's just almost uh, this lifestyle change. Um, yeah. And along with it, sort of even, you know, the clean energy solution for the for the whole house. And mm-hmm. so it is. It is very very interesting. Um, while we're seeing slowly that's happening, that it's kind of moving from being a woman's issue to actually a household issue and uh, and that's that's quite that's quite positive right mhm i definitely think it is and i think the more sort of um if you think about it also from how attractive this sector is from an investment perspective so sort of moving away from consumer finance but more to if if we all agree that this is indeed a a really large global issue which we i think everybody agrees on then 
if it is such a large issue that needs to be addressed, and we're talking about providing access to clean cooking solutions for 3 billion people, then that's going to need some really large-scale um, interventions and, and mm-hmm. really sort of business approaches that are able to actually fill that gap. Um, and so with the alliance, we really believe that making sure that um, not immediately, it's very still, I think it's, it's very much still sort of a nascent market and an emerging market, but over time we really want to make sure that, that we make it an interesting market for um, the financial sector as well. And that's going to take some time. I think it's one of the important roles of the alliance over the next couple of years from a market strengthening perspective to continue, mm-hmm. continue to do some of the work that you were mentioning earlier where we work with um, emerging enterprises and, and business owners to help them optimize their business systems, optimize their model or the, the um, products that they're selling, thinking through different and creative ways of bundling, just a whole suite of services or technical assistance that we can provide to these companies, but also if and, and sort of when needed, be able to do smaller sort of small grants right. that like the Spark grant, for example, or the Spark fund that we've established to make sure that, that they can use that grant to um, do the work that they need to do to then ultimately, obviously, sort of leverage that and see if they, can, if they can raise additional equity and debt. Um, and we've seen some good examples already of that in the market. Um, but it's going to take a lot of work over the next um, several years to make sure that that then leads to further investment um, into the sector. And it's, it's a lot of money so that how we're talking do we, about. So how do we scale this? I mean, how do we bring the scale into it? I mean, the numbers that... Uh, we need to achieve. I mean, it's, they're just astounding. So, uh, you know, it's fantastic, obviously, what you're doing in terms of uh, now working with the small enterprises and giving them the funding to get investment ready so they can work with organizations like ours and, you know, get investments. But, but again, it's just drop in the bucket. So how do we get the scale? Is it the corporate? Do we get them in? I mean, how, how do we do it? Yeah, it's it's the excellent question, and one of the reasons why I'm personally really sort of excited to be at the Alliance right now, because it is, as you were saying, it is really, truly a, a large issue that we're talking about, and it's going to therefore need some really large interventions. And so the way that the Alliance thinks about this is really a couple of different approaches, but very importantly, we really identify and, and work with what we call the sort of the pioneers in the market, the companies where we see real potential for sort of industrialization of their operations. And so through that, they can go from production of like 6,000 units per week to 60,000 units per week. And so although just 60,000 still doesn't sound like a lot, obviously when you start adding a, a couple of these country or companies within a company or a country together, then then you can start thinking about sort of really penetrating or, or that market and really making sure that, that the issue within that country is really addressed. It's going to take a lot of investment um, to actually do that. And so we really feel that sort of the role of the alliance is to sort of give that initial sort of support to make sure that we can then, those companies are actually able to attract further capital to really grow their businesses. So that's one way to think about and sort of that the alliance really sees it's, it's an important role to play. I do think that we also, as a sector, need to think creatively about other partnerships and, like, are there other companies out there that could play a role in here that are already established com- uh, um, companies but haven't really thought about this as a, a profitable sector or a sector that they should um, start looking into. And we can see some of those 
um, trends emerging. I think it's really interesting to think about the concept of an intrapreneur. And so if you are mm-hmm. very entrepreneurial within a large corporation, you can sort of mm-hmm. see yourself as an intrapreneur. And I think one of the things that we've seen a lot within Access to Energy is that some of the energy companies have intrapreneurs within their own um, businesses who really think creatively or sort of around business model innovation. And I would love to see and would really like to see more of that entrepreneurial spirit for some of the large corporations as well so that within that that's another way to get to the skill that you were um, alluding to which is absolutely the critical important question Uh, when you think about the capital requirements that you mentioned Dimfina Mm -hmm. uh, speaking some time ago to some friends at the World Bank and also the IFC and they were talking quite a bit about uh, using blended finance as a possible solution to these kinds mm-hmm. of capital requirements. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you've seen any of those kinds of uh, mm-hmm. you know, investments that are starting to uh, look at the, the, the fuel and cooking issue. Mm-hmm. We do. We do. And it, it is very, very um, important. And I think you're absolutely right that that sort of thinking about grants and then sort of blended financing and then how it, at some point that hopefully moves into sort of a more private equity equity uh, or debt structuring for some of these companies is really important. And I think the blended sort of capital and availability of that for access to energy is definitely increasing. I can see that um, very clearly. I think for work around access to clean cooking solutions, it's emerging. Um, and it's going to take some um, sort of convincing, obviously, that, that part of the job for the alliance and the role that we play is to make sure that for those investors like um, IFC or the World Bank or others, it actually increasingly become something that that they're really interested in in working on and they and they we see that happening we see more and more of the sort of those financial institutions um starting to look into the these markets there's a different risk profile associated with this kind of work that is not the same as um thinking about sort of off-grid solar for um electrification and so it is also important to not sort of group all of those together and say it's all roughly in the bucket of bucket of access to energy, it really requires sort of a different um, risk profile and a different sort of payback period, a different way of thinking about how to right. um, create systems that are good for the consumers um, to grow this business. So I'm really keen to make sure that that distinction continues to be made. Denton, I'm really, really glad that you brought that up because I think usually there is there is that confusion um, in terms of thinking that, okay, whatever World Bank and IFC is working on is really on the ground level. It, frankly, most of the time it is not because they are working at big infrastructure level and, you know, their green bonds that they're working on are something that will never solve the issues that you're dealing with. So, mm-hmm. so you're absolutely right. The risk profile and the spectrum mm-hmm. is so broad. Yeah. Um, and this, you know, this really needs that special attention. And I think yeah. it's also interesting, I wonder... You know, if we put more value in measuring um, the impact, you know, sort of mm-hmm. the environmental impact, the impact on the lives, you know, of these women and giving a value to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, even the, you know, the savings that the families have, right? I mean, they spend so much money on kerosene and or even the firewoods, the safety, mm-hmm. the, the, the cost of that. Um, there's a human cost of that. So. You know, it's interesting when you look at the value and the the impact measurement of all that. I do mm-hmm. think, that, I mean, the equation will start changing because, um, you know, I think that is that is one of the fundamental pieces as well. I mean, do you, do you see that, or is it still kind of 
you know, sort of wishful thinking. Yeah, no, we said, we definitely see some of that. Um, there's like a lot of conversations around sort of result-based finance and sort of really thinking carefully about the different impacts um, that one can achieve if um, families and women have access to clean cooking solutions. So there's definitely a lot of conversations about sort of what that would look like and how that potentially could work. Um, it still needs to be proven, and it's something that, um, as much as I think it's it's an incredibly important step forward, it's also one where I, I, we can't wait for that to be figured out either. So I'm really, you know, really keen and I have a deep sense of urgency that, that all of these different solutions need to be included when we think about um, giving people access to clean cooking solutions. And I think that's the really important issue here is that it's going to take a, a wide range of solutions to address the issue um, at the scale that's required. And so I encourage, always encourage people to think that their, their sort of one solution that they're working on isn't the only one that's going to solve this problem, right? It's, gonna, it's not a silver bullet issue. It's really like a whole suite of different, different solutions that need to become uh, more viable, including thinking about sort of result-based finance and other financing options. And I just... It's it's important to keep moving forward while we're at the same time trying to figure out some innovative ways to attract more finance into this market. Well, you're definitely doing your part, I would say, and, uh, and especially you know in terms of the you know the sustainable development goals, you know five and seven, which is women and clean energy. So, mm-hmm. any final words for for our listeners in terms of this fantastic work that the Alliance is doing, and what are your kind of future plans? Yeah, I think, I mean, what I would say is that uh, um, this conversation obviously focused a lot sort of on the business model innovation and, and finance innovation and sort of what global players can, can do in this space. But I think it's important to realize that, that what we're ultimately talking about is women and children. And so mm-hmm. this work should never sort of be, be done without the context of the, the people that we're trying to reach. And um, I think it's really, really important to never let go of that passion and to really never, never sort of um, never sit back because there really is no sitting back. There is no. This is not an acceptable way um, for the, the global world or for our world to continue to move. And it's it's a topic that I think, as you were saying at the very beginning, like why is this not a higher priority for everybody? And and I see it as my job and the Alliance's job to make sure that we continue to raise awareness around this issue because of the women who are impacted by um, the current situation. Right. Well, hats off to you. Mukul, do you have any other thoughts or, or questions for our guests? Uh, no, no. I think this is... Uh, I, I just have... Uh gratitude for the work that uh, Demfana, you and your colleagues are doing to, to uh, increase awareness about this and for, for all your efforts to, to, to tackle this problem. Thank you for what you're doing. Well, it's, it's definitely my honor. And I always say that, um, you know, when you move through your career, like sometimes it's a little uncertain why you're doing certain things <laughs> when you're earlier in your career. But I can definitely say that this particular um, position and the work that we're doing here, I strongly feel that my different elements of my career are sort of being bundled and focused to address this issue. And so it is really um, energizing for me to sort of think about all the different lessons that I've learned in my career to bring bring to bear to address this issue at the skill that's required. So it is, it is a um, difficult challenge, but it's one that I'm really um, eager to continue to address. 
Great. Well, we are really glad you're doing it because you're doing an amazing thing for the world. Um, so thank you so much, Simfina. Thank you to you and your colleagues, as Mukul said, you know, and hats off to all the wonderful work that you're doing. And thank you for being on the show. Absolutely. It was a pleasure talking with you both. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.